This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. You're pretty good at this. Wrapping and sitting down. Hola. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Conversations on disability politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. If you know anything about me, you know that I'm on Twitter. A lot. And I'm not just there for the chat babes. I've been involved in various Twitter chats as an organizer and participant. And today I'm talking to Don Gibson and Alex Haygard about the Twitter chats they lead. Twitter chats or discussions set at a particular time online using a hashtag as a way to organize and find one another. Dawn is the founder of Spoonie Chat, a community on both Twitter and Facebook. Alex is the creator of Bed Trauma Chat, that gives people space to share their experiences of medical neglect and abuse. You'll learn more about the origins of the Twitter chats, the utility and power of online communities, and the process of labor involved in moderating these conversations. Are you ready? Away we go. So, Dawn and Alex, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. You two are just real dynamos at Twitter chats, <laughs> especially Twitter chats for the disability community, for the disability community. I was wondering if both of you would just uh, introduce yourself first. My name's Dawn Gibson. I am from uh, Detroit, Michigan. I founded Spoonie Chat in the summer of 2013 as a way to bring together rheumatology patients and uh, kind of organize them around self-care and pride. Over time, the chat expanded across most diagnoses. We're entering our sixth year here in 2019. That's awesome. Thank you. So I'm based currently in a small town north of Toronto. Um, and I started Med Trauma Chat about a little over a year and a half ago, I guess. When I sort of started getting into Twitter, one of the first chats I came across was Spoonie Chat. And then, of course, the Crypt the Vote chats. And they were such an incredible way of connecting with other people in the disabled community. I'd sort of found, as someone who's struggling to get diagnosed and access care, was that there wasn't a lot of space online to talk about um, experiences of medical trauma and, and neglect and abuse. Um, and that when those spaces did exist, they often existed in sort of explicitly patient groups, which were often not very aware of broader things like disability justice, um, often not very intersectional. So I wanted to create a space that would be a little bit more tapped into the wider disability community, but um, making space to talk about those specifically medical experiences that a lot of us have. Why Twitter chats versus other ways of creating community? I've been 
mostly housebound for the last um oh god three or four years at this point um because i lost my license for medical reasons and we have like zero transit where i'm living so twitter has been a huge and really important way of enabling me to connect with other disabled people and the other thing Twitter chats were something I could engage with even when my, um, my my spoons, as we call them, were at their lowest. You're able to just sort of even just read along with and like and retweet other people. There, there's still ways of engaging and participating even when you're sort of really, really struggling physically, I find. Uh, yeah, I was talked on to Twitter uh, in 2011. A friend of mine, he worked on me for quite a while. He felt like I had a story and a voice that would be perfect for Twitter. And I was highly resistant because I was still unclear about how much I wanted to say about myself and about my disability, about my health, just anything. And I saw this uh, dietitian's chat, a weekly chat, and I was so enchanted by this community of people so interested in food. I have food allergies. And so I understand the, um, the need to focus on food in ways some other people might not uh, understand it. I thought, okay, I'll get myself going on Twitter just to try and help other people and to try and understand what people are saying. But my motivation, it, it came from a lot of different places. First of all, spondylitis is not a diagnosis that gets a lot of attention. And there wasn't representation for women of color. So I thought, well, let me just see what I can make happen. And then we'll just see. So I put out some tweets saying I wanted to use the hashtag Spoonie Chat. I gave a two-week comment period. And I just started with... Um, a basic Q&As about the Spoon Theory by Christine Miserandino and trying to get a sense of was my experience typical? Did people feel that they themselves were disabled? You know, what, what was it like? And over time, we all became some kind of friends and just kept going. So being able to uh, kind of get together on Twitter, it, it breaks the geographical boundaries. It breaks time boundaries because those tweets are just there and people can engage when they want to or when they can engage. And it just, it breaks open space. It, it breaks open public thought, social thought, political thought, all of it. Uh, and that's, that's why I'm on Twitter. I think one thing that's been incredibly interesting for me with med trauma chat in particular is finding out how global so many of these experiences are. You have people from all over the world coming together and sharing the exact same experiences that are just, um, the, the policy is a little different, but the, the clinical experiences end up being very, very similar for everyone. Yes. Yeah. I don't want to quite call it an equalizer because the, the barriers are there for people who are dealing with certain intellectual barriers, people who have issues with internet connectivity, um, 
you know, even for myself as a dyslexic, sometimes I have to work really, really hard <laughs> to keep up with uh, what's happening with the chat because all the words are moving. <laughs> but there is something like uh, maybe choose your own adventure at your own paceness uh, about the, the Twitter space that is special. A lot of people, they can't speak publicly about their health or they can't um, give intimate details the way that I might because they've got a child custody issue or whatever, you know, uh, but they are watching and these tweets are doing things for them that nothing else will do. And I'm not saying I'm doing something nothing nobody <laughs> else can do. There are lots of great people out there, but it's it's Twitter that is not barrier free, but I think low friction for most people to use it. And Alex, you know, talk to me about, I guess, you know, how you started the, the travel chat and why did you select like, this hashtag? What I found for, gosh, most of my life is that I felt incredibly isolated by these things I was experiencing um, within medical spaces. What was really sort of a first turning point for me, I found, um, was in around, I guess, 2013, I actually found an article on Medium about idiopathic hypersomnia. It was actually the first time that I saw anyone articulating this idea that people don't believe you, that what you're experiencing is real. People think you're just not trying hard enough. And so it was through that that I start, sort of entered patient communities on Facebook. But then I, I often found those spaces very exclusionary. Um, as Don has mentioned, there's not a lot of space um, for, for recognizing the distinct experiences of people of color, for example, also for queer people. And oddly enough, there was often a lot of ableism within them as well. Like you, you get what I call the gold star spoonies where the people are like, well, you know, I keep exercising because at least it means I can still walk, which as someone who, who doesn't really walk very much anymore and who uses a chair can be incredibly alienating. So often what you see discussed too within, um, within a lot of sort of medically oriented spaces is people having these same experiences, but not realizing that this is a systemic problem and sort of, and asking themselves the same questions that I had for so long um, and not realizing that this is in fact a disability justice issue. One of the things that's been most meaningful to me has been when people have direct messaged me um, and said, I don't feel able to participate openly in the chat, but I'm reading what you're saying and it's really resonating. You know, there are a lot of drawbacks to, you know, visibility, but I think being visible through a hashtag, through a series of tweets, it's really important to really uh, share that lived experience and that perspective. I like the idea of speaking to myself, my past self. And I think about what would a 25-year-old Dawn have gotten from being able to go right to Twitter and read all of this stuff and to know it is still possible to be a part of a community. It's possible to feel proud. It's possible to still feel beautiful. You know, all those things. That would have been so different <laughs> than what happened which was being handed a stack of pamphlets and a, you know, 
some prescriptions and not understanding anything about my body, about how I felt, just not understanding. And it's not even like my doctor was a mean person. She understood the clinical facts of spondylitis. She did not understand the social facts of being a black woman with spondylitis. She didn't understand the fact that there was no support group in my area. Uh, you mentioned on Twitter yesterday that this is Spiritual's sixth anniversary, and that's it's Twitter life. That's <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So, what do you think you've learned about doing Twitter chats, about organizing chats, and just you know building community? So, part of the chat process is building trust. And we build trust by modeling good behavior. We build trust by consistency, having a a similar format, having a space that is inviting, that allows people to be themselves. It's just a place for people to be and think of what they want to develop in themselves and what's possible for themselves. There was a, a big hunger for identity, a big hunger for understanding ourselves outside of concepts of productivity and usefulness and all of that stuff. I'm gradually scaling back questions. I had this sense when I started that I needed more and more questions to keep people's attention. And I don't know why I thought that. (laughs) Maybe it was just the, the hangover of a productivity mindset or I just felt I had to earn the attention to build the community. I don't know. It could have been any of that. Alex, what's your approach to organizing and hosting bed trauma chats? I think that it's sort of a merging of my sociology designer and activist personas um, that leads to some of the the way I, I set up questions for med trauma chat. Some of these topics that we deal with, um, such as sort of misogyny in medical care are just so big. It's it's hard to sometimes stop yourself and say like, no, it's it's important to create something that's more digestible for people to engage with rather than asking everything all at once. I, I feel like Med Trauma Chat has um, a dual purpose, the primary of which is creating a space for people to talk about what are often really painful and difficult experiences. And I think just creating that space for people to talk and not necessarily feeling the need to offer advice, but just create that space and acknowledge and validate that. That's been really important. And it's often really hard to do because people are talking about, you know, experiencing medical assaults and it's hard to just have nothing to say other than I'm so sorry that happened to you. But sometimes that's, that's what's needed. I am aware that probably there are some medical professionals, um, medical students who read this and I want them to learn from what's being discussed. So sort of being mindful of that dual focus, but always trying to ensure that it's primarily just a space for people to to share their experiences and trying to keep that as safe as possible for them and trying to keep it as safe as possible for people who are coming from marginalized communities and for whom patient spaces often aren't safe. Mm-hmm. 
know a lot of the conversations that happen、uh, during both of your chats. It can be very distressing. And what did you both do as hosts to, to really try to help to remind your、uh, to your participants how to you know practice self care or just protect themselves? Yeah, I start. Every chat with a reminder that I don't have a disclosure requirement. I ask people to introduce themselves in a way that they're comfortable with, and part of that came from my concern about the、uh, pre-affordable care act days, about people really having to live forever with a disclosure of an illness. Because once that's out there, that's out there. What you do on Twitter is real. And it, it will always be there. I borrowed Dawn's introductory question, which is to identify yourself however you feel comfortable. I also always do sort of a little introductory thread, which is、uh, it again. It fulfills a couple of functions. One of which is the sort of educational purpose. Another is for accessibility purposes. So,、um, providing a little bit of context and definition around some of the terms I'm using in the chat. Or what the topic is that I'm focusing on for people who who may not have a clear idea going in or may may struggle with processing.、Um, but I also try and make an effort within those introductions to provide a very broad list of content notes that are likely to be applicable to what's discussed during that particular day's chat, so that people can have a little bit of warning in advance、um, if they want to mute my account or the tag to protect themselves. Um, and I also always、um, put in a reminder to people that if they're discussing、um, something that's more specific or that falls outside the scope of of those notes that I've identified, to try and label it themselves. One of the big things that I, I try to challenge with the chat is this idea that、um, medical spaces are oriented around compliance, and I think they need to become more oriented around consent. And so, for me, giving people as much as possible the ability to Actively consent to engaging with the chat is really important to me. That there, there's no pressure really. It's about sharing the experiences as much as is helpful to you,、um, rather than doing it for other people. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. It's it's important to to make sure that people are participating on their own terms and for themselves. The advocacy machine is real, and. It uses a lot of our stories and experiences, Gosh,、yeah. and may not transform the space around us. I want people to do it if that's what they really want to do, but at the same time, nobody owes anybody else advocacy, and people don't owe it to their disease communities or their diagnosis communities to just burn themselves, you know, to light the world. <laughs> you know, it's it's not owed to anybody, and. I'm just careful with it now. Sometimes I run chat as a hangout, which is just a super chill set of questions or topics. I try to keep it as non-medical as possible, and、um, that's a nice break for people. But then the other thing is, I feel it's important to model self-care in my community. So I will say to people, we have a hangout this week because I don't feel great. It, it's important. When I first got into chat and Twitter in general, I was thinking 
from a somewhat ableist mindset that if people just had the right information and the right tips, they could conquer this. Okay, that's such bullshit. <laughs> that's bullshit with bullshit thoughts with bullshit sprinkles. I had to really go back to basics and understand that a lot of it has to be about us being a people together, that some of us are too sick to conquer anything. And now I see that just, as you said, Alice, being ourselves in public, that is the victory. Mm -hmm. And the tips, if they help, great, but I'm less and less on tips or anything that seems like if we could just get the right cheat code, people would be great. You know, as the co-partner of Crypto Votes, you know, a lot of people ask us, oh, why aren't you organizing events or uh, rallies? You know, we really feel like our ditch is really carving out spaces for conversations that also, you know, are catalysts for action. You know, I'd like to talk to both of you about, I guess, the amount of labor that you put in, and also, I guess, some of the biggest kind of misconceptions people have about your work as organizers of Twitter chats. Well, I think some people are under the mistaken assumption that I am paid by someone. Some of the misconceptions about chats go back to the basic gendered misunderstanding of labor so that what a woman or a femme does is the commons and she should do it or they should do it and it should be done well but it's something that's expected and it's not professional and so it's just this thing that people are used to having like dinner <laughs> did you upset the dinner is cold or not to don't like it <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Where's my steak, woman? Exactly. <laughs> uh, how about you, Alice? I think there is also an overlap in this idea of invisible labor, too, with what goes into so much of what you do as a chronic patient, and especially as a chronic patient who is in, in any way sort of um, has a marginalized identity. Because I mean, like I, I tell people that I haven't been unemployed for the past four years. I've been working full time as a patient because I became an admin assistant for, you know, my six doctor's clinics that I was like having to call one and then the other one. And then the first one again, when they each told me something completely different and were like arguing with each other via me, like there, there's so much work that goes into it and it, it is invisible and uncompensated so much of the time. Yeah, there's an element of this kind of work that we do um, in creating sort of patient and, and chronic illness and disability culture that is unrecognized in the same way. And I think for me too, part of it is that it can just be tiring because again, like so much of the stuff that we talk about is, it's it's hard stuff. And on the one hand, I often come away from the chats feeling really renewed but it can also wear you down after a while when you're still sort of fighting those battles within the healthcare system yourself. If you sort of keep trying to to burn the candle at both ends, um, that can be really damaging to us as as disabled people, as advocates and activists. 
Well, and you know, a couple a couple months ago, um, actually, when the the doctors are dickheads hashtag was going viral, um, and I shared a little bit of, of one of my medical horror stories on it, and a doctor replied to me saying, "Well, I'm so glad that you self advocate for yourself." And I said, you shouldn't be. You should be horrified that I've had to self-advocate in this way. Like no one should ever have to do the things that I've had to do in order to access care just to survive. Like that—that that is not a thing to be happy about. <laughs> that is 100% correct. What has it been? Some of these about being a host did organize a Twitter chat. That's not so great. The the biggest struggle, I think, especially now that I'm going back to um, paid work, is being able to make the time. The other major issue for me, I think, is accessibility. I do have um, some mutuals on Twitter for whom chats are just straight up inaccessible um, because they have, um, you know, cognitive. Um, disabilities or low vision and, and don't have a setup that enables them to to engage uh, easily with Twitter chats in real time. So finding ways of increasing that accessibility as much as possible um, and creating as open a space as possible has been a challenge. And especially since Storify has disappeared. So I've been sort of trying to to figure out ways of sort of creating archives that are accessible to people. But again, how much do I limit myself um, in order to just get the chat done um, versus sort of how much energy do I expend to try and make it as open to as many people as possible? Alex's words, I think, hit the mark. Addressing accessibility is difficult. Um, And the chat's they are definitely biased toward someone whose brain is quick and someone who is sighted and someone who is suited for certain rough and tumble, you know, that, that kind of thing. But I just think about what it was like to be 25 years old and to know that my life had changed and that nobody was helping me. And I can't shake that from my mind ever. You know, we're doing this out of love, out of community. You know, people pick up on that energy at that place of genuine authenticity. I think often we're so socially and geographically isolated when you're a disabled person um, and when when you're chronically ill, it limits your ability to access a lot of um, physical spaces for community building and organizing. So as much as, as Twitter is sort of often derided as, you know, armchair activism or, <laughs> or what have you, it has been incredibly meaningful. And I, I think the same goes for a lot of people who engage with these spaces um, for all their problems, social media platforms, are still often a way of making space for people who've never had that space um, out in in the real world, in in meat space, as I call it. Yeah. An interesting thing about engaging with digital activism is that I've become a lot more connected to people in the UK and the US um, initially versus Canada. 
And there is a really incredible tradition of, of disability rights and disability justice organizing in both those countries that has not been as strong here in Canada for a variety of reasons. But the Disability Justice Network of Ontario um, was launched latter half of 2018 um, by an activist called Sarah Jama. And they are doing incredible, incredible work um, within this province to to start creating some of the conversations that I think we really need to have. So their account, it's DJN Ontario. So if you're if you're looking for another incredible community of activists to follow, they are they are really good ones. I think that Twitter chats are kind of the unsung hero of uh, organizing and advocacy. The bonds that people have are very strong, and these bonds translate offline. So I know people through Twitter and through my chats that I never would have known. And I have been to their homes. They've been to my home. You know, it's real. It's not just this series of ones and zeros. It's not just a bunch of avatars. And I know some people are not necessarily... Uh, who they are representing themselves to be and all of that. But for me and in my life, Twitter is very real. And my chat is a big part of who I am out in the world. And so I hope people can understand that for me and in my community, that's what Twitter chats are about. You know, our worlds are so much richer because we know each other. And I just want to, you know, end this podcast with some gratitude toward both of you, uh, you know, Donna and Alex, I just feel like we are friends, you know. I see you both, and I'm just so thankful to be, you know, in this world with you both. Thank you. I feel the same. Yeah, same here. This podcast is a production of the Disability Visibility Projects. And all of our community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability media and culture. All episodes, including text transcripts, are available at disabilityvisibilityproject.com slash podcast. You'll also find out more about Alex and Dawes' work on my website. The audio producer for this episode is Cheryl Green. Introduction by Latif McFloud. The music by Roger Sports Camp. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Play. You can also support our podcast for a dollar a month or more by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dvp. That's P-A-T- R-E-O-N.com slash TVP. Well, thanks for listening. Did I see you on the internet? Rocket to the blast stop. Stop, drop, dance off. Bye.